Hello and welcome into a special off-season episode of Dig City, a Purdue volleyball podcast. Today, it's a bit of a crossover episode as I'm not only joined by the head coach of Purdue volleyball, Dave Shondell, but down in Lexington, the head coach of Kentucky volleyball, Craig Skinner. Coach Skinner, how are you doing today? Doing great. You know, already saw one Boilermaker. Now I get to see two. You know, first one was Carly Kramer and second one's Dave Shondell. So it's a good day. It is a good day. Yeah, and so coaches are... Uh, more than happy to uh, to be kind of leading into this offseason. I'm sure I know Coach Shondell went on a little bit of a vacation. Coach Skinner, how are you able to, uh, I guess, come down from the adrenaline rush that was winning the national championship? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I wish I would have gone on vacation with Dave. I need, <laughs> need a few days to play some golf. And um, I mean, it's, you know, I wouldn't trade it in for anything. I mean, it's it's been difficult at, at times just to try and balance my time and family time and you know, the things associated with getting back and getting organized and preparing for camps and recruiting and, you know, all that type of stuff. But it's um, it's ongoing and, and um, don't don't want to turn the page yet. That's for sure. Yeah. Coach Shondell and I talked about the quick turnaround in our last Dig City episode. But for for your team and for the SEC, a couple other conferences, it's, you know, a heavy dose of volleyball. What was it like to play in the fall turn back around, play in the spring, and then get ready for another fall season? Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, there's no question. And, and I, you know, whether it's Dave in the Big Ten or us in the SEC, regardless of when the actual first match started, I mean, we still all started preparing in, you know, August or whatever it was. So some were preparing to practice, some were preparing to play and everything in between. So trying to, it was, a, it's a mental grind more than a physical grind. I think if, if everyone would probably admit to that, but uh just because of most of the uncertainty of what we're, even if we were playing or not playing, you still didn't know if you were going to practice next week based on testing and health and all that type of stuff. So um, I'm glad we had the chance to play in the fall uh, for several different reasons. Um, I'm sure there were some positives to not playing in the fall as well. You know, I think that's our job as coaches to spin it in our favor and, and whichever way that is. And, um, but I, I, do, I do think it helped us to play in the fall. Yeah, the Wildcats really geared into, uh, I guess, full gear in the spring, only lost that one match to Florida. I do want to talk about the Purdue match because this is a Purdue volleyball podcast. So as, as you know, I don't know if you're like a, a Sean McVay out there, if you remember every single point from every single set, mm -hmm. but if you could walk me through a little bit of that come from behind mm -hmm. first set, 17 to 12, and Ali Stumler really steps it up to that second level in, in the first set against Purdue. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you know what you're going to get when you play against Purdue and you're going to play a team that is relentless in their pursuit of defense and, and effort and, and uh, you know, the intangibles. And, and so one thing I felt like going into that match was that we were lucky enough to play a team similar mentality in Western Kentucky the match before. And we played really well. And it, it, it uh, you know, but I also you know, share with our team that we, we kind of have that identity too. So it's a, it's a slug fest when you're going against teams that just are relentless in their effort and, and defensive intensity and focus and, and serving pressure and all that type of stuff. So we were lucky to play Western prior to that match, but I mean, it's always a battle and, and uh, you know, obviously we got concerned in, in the first game and Purdue was playing great. And, um, you know, I think the one thing for us all year is we felt like if, if one thing wasn't working, we could rely on, you know, offense if the defense, you know, wasn't working. If the, if the 
offense wasn't working or defense. I think we were balanced that way. And it definitely helped us in the Purdue match because you couldn't just rely on one thing. Yeah, fantastic. Because, you know, as, as we go back and look through it, that entire run, I, I am curious about the late matches because Western Kentucky and Kentucky, you had to sit around for like two hours after you were supposed to play to get that late start. Was that an advantage in any way to the student athletes who had to do it one night later in the Purdue match and just wait a little bit longer for the, for the uh, following one to finish? Yeah. I mean, I guess we'd have to say it's, it was an advantage for us because, you know, we had success, but uh, I, I, we went into the tournament and let the team know we, there's going to be something that's not going to make us happy. You know, whether it's the setup, whether it's the match, whether it's the match time, whether it's the venue, there's something that's going to frustrate all of us. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that's just the way it's going to be. And so we're going to have to learn to deal with it and whatever comes our way. The only thing we have to be concerned about is being better than the next opponent we play that particular match. And I think that's what we boiled our focus into and, whether we were playing at 9 a.m. in the morning or, you know, 11 p.m. at night, it just was the, the situation presented to us. So we had to be, uh, I guess, go with the flow type mentality and, and figure it out and, and only worry about trying to be better than whoever we were playing at that particular time. Go ahead, Coach. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Daniel. And, and Craig, thanks so much for joining us on, on this episode. And, um, I have great admiration for you. I always have, uh, you know, watched you grow up with my brother, John, and um, turn into the, the the person and the coach that you are. And uh, just really excited for you to to win that national championship. It's it's a well-deserved honor. But um, share with us a little bit about your, your background. Um, I mean, I'm, I know your background, but not everybody that listens to our uh, podcast does. But talk about your high school career, because I, th I think what – was interesting was you kind of bounced back and forth uh, between some different things, both athletically. And then once you got into a professional career, just take us from Northside high school on to where you are today. Zeus. You know, you talk about bouncing around that, uh, you know, I played in the high school, I played football, tennis. I dove one year. <laughs> <That was> a, <laughs> um, golf. Um, you know, middle school, I thought I was a pretty good baseball player, but uh, um, in eighth grade, I hit two home runs and I came back for my brother's graduation, never started the rest of the year. So I guess I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> Who was coaching that team? Um, that was, uh, was that Overmeyer, Mike Overmeyer, I believe. Okay. And, yeah. and uh, um, but, you know, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. I loved football. Football is my favorite sport. I just love playing football in high school. And um, I mean, luckily I, took a break from volleyball my first freshman and sophomore years and, and Johnny and I you know started playing volleyball in sixth grade got a random group of athletes around Muncie to play and there's plenty of stories about that and um but picked it back up my junior and senior year and played you know played and went to AAUs and stuff like that had a great time and I played middle I think at that point in time as you know probably the one person that could touch over 10 feet on our team. So they stuck me in the middle. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think uh, I went to Michigan to play football, long story, but was a punter and a kicker and quickly realized there that the five other kickers and punters on scholarship were probably going to beat me at that point in time. And I think there was 105 people on scholarship there. So they had some flexibility with their scholarship numbers. Um, I was walking through the rec center one time at Michigan and, saw that this bunch of guys playing volleyball and I was like, I didn't, I didn't know there was 
club volleyball. And so I just said, Hey, what's going on? Can I, well, we had tryouts last week. It's, you know, probably not going to work. And, you know, I said, Hey, well, I, you know, I played at, you know, ball state with some of the guys and know the ball state coaches and, and the team and all the people from Muncie, you know, just, I played for a while. And so they, luckily they gave me a little mini tryout and, uh-huh. and that's history from there. I just loved it and wanted to play varsity. So your dad, Don gave me the chance to come back and, and play on the team and I had to scrap and claw my way to get on the travel roster and um, then started coaching club, you know, with, with you and, and Wes and coaching high school, with your brother, Steve, and just loved it. Talk about uh, once you got into the, the college level uh, where you started and, uh, and I, I know you did some women and then some men and you got out of it and that may not be the order that it was all in. And then you got back with some great opportunities. Uh, uh, fill us in on that. Yeah, I was just telling our GA yesterday, um, you know, everywhere you go in life, it's typically because of a connection, you know, somehow, some way. And I was, uh, I was living in Myrtle beach trying to be a golf pro. And then, you know, a guy named Brian Begor called me and said, Hey, the, the Wisconsin coach is looking for a restricted earnings coach. I'm like, what's that? He goes, well, you make it 12,000 a year and, uh, you bang balls and get to be in practice. And I said, okay, sounds cool. So I went and interviewed with Susie Ketchum at the time, who's now the Milwaukee, UW-Milwaukee coach, and I, and, and one other interview for that job, and luckily got it, and um, I think I realized, well, I have a degree in accounting, and I'm coaching volleyball for $12,000 a year, so after three years, I'm thinking, well, maybe I can make more money doing something else, and so quit on Coach Cook there, and, and uh, started working in banking, and Missed teaching, missed competing, missed the game. And, and luckily, um, Joel Walton got the head job at Ball State, taking over for your dad when he retired and asked me to come join him. And I jumped at the chance. And a um, year and a half in, Cook got the job at Nebraska. And um, I just, he asked me to come back and join him, which I was kind of surprised about because I, I left him in, at Wisconsin. And I just at that time kind of realized if I wanted to be a head coach, I probably needed to go to the women's game because there's so few opportunities in the men's game to be a head coach. And, um, you know, obviously was going to make more money on the women's side and, and jump, jumped at the chance. It wasn't an easy decision because I loved, I loved coaching at Ball State with the men. I loved that program and if it wasn't for that program. I wouldn't be here today, but, uh, and so you went to Nebraska for five years and then here we are. When you arrived at, at Kentucky, Craig, um, what was going through your mind? Uh, the program had not been great. It had not been awful, but it had not been, you know, one of the top programs in the, in the league by any stretch. I think was John Braden, the last coach that was there mm-hmm. you took yeah. over for another ball state connection. <laughs> yeah. um, but tell us what was going through your mind at that point. You know, I, I was, I was a little intimidated to be a head coach when I was an assistant. I just, you know, I just felt like, God, there's so many things I don't know. So many things uh, that, uh, worry me about making decisions and being the being the person in the you know in the big chair and uh, so I felt like I needed a partner to do that and and you know I was got married a year and a half before that with Megan I just felt I needed someone to share it with because there was going to be so many ups and downs and sideways situations that you need to be able to confide in somebody outside of your circle of volleyball and um, so I had a chance to go to Iowa State I had a chance to go to Kentucky and when I was here in Lexington. I just felt like this is a city and place that we could raise a family and be happy, whether it was with volleyball or not. And I didn't really care. Both programs were 
not doing well. I, I think Kentucky was three and 13 in the SEC in 2004. There was a couple pieces we had to, you know, um, put some pieces in place, but it was, man, it was a full court press from day one, trying to figure out how to be a head coach, how to make decisions, how to recruit, how to organize staff, how to prioritize. I mean, you know, all this, I mean, you get seven things coming at you once, which two things are the most important to take care of today. And I'll never forget my brother. Um, I was telling him that and he goes, you just have to take the top three things and take care of them and, and let the other things go until you wrap your hand, wrap your head around the th three most important things. And so I just kind of stuck with that, you know, ever since that time, but um, it was a challenge. I mean, I, there after our first ass kicking by Auburn and three zero in the sec, my first year, I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, what are we doing? This is crazy. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we stuck with it and, and, things started to happen. So it was, it was a whirlwind, but loved every minute of it. I was listening to Garth Brooks talk on the way over here uh, today. I'm in Muncie driving from West Lafayette and he had a great uh, commentary about the competitiveness between the Beatles and the Beach Boys back <laughs> in the, in the sixties and seventies and how surprisingly enough, the, the Beach Boys competed with the, uh, you know, albums against the Beatles, which were the, you know, the fab four. Yeah. And he talked about how competitive the Beatles or the, or the Beach Boys were and how they just had to do things differently uh, to be successful. But the competitiveness, you don't think about competitiveness in, in you know, music that often, at least I don't. But, you, you know, you went to Kentucky and knew you had an uphill battle, um, but you found ways to be successful. And you seem to me like the kind of coach who's going to find ways to take their talent and be successful. Talk about your philosophy a little bit about how to win at whatever level you're at. Well, there's a few things come to mind. I mean, I guess, first of all, no matter what group you're with or coaching, they need to know you believe in them. And so whatever that means, whether it's developing relationships with them or, you know, putting them in situations to be successful, they have to know that you know, you and I believe in them or there's no, who else is going to believe in them? And so I felt like that was really important, even though in my back of my mind, I'm thinking, God, there's no way we can compete with some of these people. Um, I think that two positions have always stuck out to me that are really important setting in, in libero. Uh, I think that, you know, my upbringing around you, around Steve, around Wes, that just the fundamentals of the game have to be instilled daily and I think you have to have a core set of drills that you do over and over and over again so that one you don't start out very good at them but by the if you keep doing them you're going to get really good at them to build confidence um, but I also full, wholeheartedly believe that um, you know I said this on a I think with Terry Pettit the other day, you know, you can't take a race car and drive it on a gravel hilly road and you can't take a Jeep and drive it on a racetrack. You have to figure out what strengths of those of your weapons or vehicles, how can you take advantage of them in the system? And we had to do that this year with, the, you know, with our middle situation and Johnny Teeler. And uh, last in 2019, we ran slide in almost every rotation. This year we were on slide in one rotation. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out what is best for each particular team is really, really important. And, um, you know, but I think the, the belief instilling belief in your players that you believe in them is, is probably, you can't get pat, you can't get to the next step without that. You know, most coaches don't enter programs that are highly successful. 
Um, they're like you, like me. Um, you, you go into a program where the coach has been released or nobody wants the job. Um, so you did that, but how did how did you how do you approach the years now compared to the years back then? Or is there a significant difference in how you approach your team comes in and you can't meet with them until August, but they're all there all summer. But at some point in time, you sit down and you start to design a plan for that season. Has it changed over the 16 years you've been at Kentucky? You know, um, yes, because the expectations are so different now than they were then. And, and you know, but I think that the, still the fundamental philosophies of teaching priority, number one, you have to teach your players how to do things well. You have to put them in the right positions. You have to decide, okay, how fast are my, you know, our sets going to be, um, you know, there has to be a common bond and connection between players. Uh, there has to be a vision of how this wants to go. But then after you establish that vision, there has to be, you know, a daily routine, a daily set of things that you have to check off your list and, and accomplish each and every day in practice to, to get to that point. I think when you early on in the season, maybe your fundamental training and individual skills is 60% of your practice. Then as you get towards the end of the season, it probably flips to 30 or 40% of your practice. And, um, you know, so the, how we kind of design a season and how we go about planning practices and all that is similar. Um, obviously there's a higher level of athlete in our gym than there was, you know, back then, but I don't think it's straight away too far from what's important in, in, um, and, you know, again, you talk to younger coaches and they think it's cool to coach and you can make a little bit of money for very wrong reasons to get into coaching. And uh, it's about teaching connection, relationships and developing and, you know, having a, um, you know, are there key words or key things or um, I guess uh, words that you can try and decide and I to determine and identify with with your team that this is what we're going to be about each year. Yeah, there's stuff like that. The SEC had not won a, a national championship in volleyball until this season, although certainly Mary Wise has had some phenomenal teams over the course of time. You've had some really good teams the last five or six seasons that I know you felt like uh, were capable of, of getting there. What's been the difference uh, for this Kentucky team that allowed you to, to actually win a national championship? I know in a phone call I had with you soon after when you were probably still on an emotional high, um, you talked surprisingly a little bit. It wasn't about a Skinner or a Skinner or a Stumbler that you thought necessarily was the, the, the significant difference. It was a competitiveness of a couple of other people. Talk about that a little bit. Um, well, I think you have to be good in every position to, to win a national championship. It's hard to beat the best teams in the country because all the best teams are coached by great people and, and uh, they're going to exploit some weakness you have, um, you know, so um, that's, I think that fundamentally we were very good in, you know, serve, receive. We were very good, you know, fundamentally defense. We were very good fundamentally setting where we our attackers could hit all spots on the court. You know, they could hit line, they could hit cross court, they could hit off the block. And we, you know, things that we certainly train all the time. Um, but, you know, you have to have players that don't fear the moment and don't fear anything. And, and, you know, don't fear the fact that they may lose a couple points here and there that they, they still feel like they can win every single time the ball is put in play. And, 
Um, you know, that I think that, uh, you know, we had, we had so many of those people. I mean, and I think even, even Maddie Skinner was way more competitive individually than I thought she was coming in. Now I don't not, that's not underestimating her. You just don't get a feel for how competitive people are until you get around them. But, you know, the, you know, Madison Lilly is, is certainly one of the most competitive players that have ever been around Gabby Curry, the same, same way. And Avery Skinner in her way, she's the, one of the most pleasant people you're ever going to talk to. But I mean, there's, there's a, Two summers ago, so there was a baseball player, I think, that wasn't cutting it in the conditioning program that they were running, and and she was on the team with them, and she let them have it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the expectations of, hey, we're in this, and this is what we're doing, so let's do our best. And so it definitely is a combination of all those things, for sure, but competitive intensity is something you, it's really hard to teach. You know, I, as you know, we don't like to give Chef too much credit uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> Uh, even though he's a very, very good friend of ours. But um, he told me middle of the season, of the spring season, he said, have you seen Kentucky? And I said, well, I haven't seen much of them since the fall. He said, we think they're the best team in the country. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And so I didn't pay too much attention to that until um, we had beaten High Point uh, in the first round. And I'd watched about... 90 hours of Oregon on tape and felt like we had a pretty good plan for them. And then I started watching Kentucky, your team. And after about an hour, I thought to myself, wow, we're going to have some problems with these guys. Uh, and most of it was just the speed of the game that you were playing, how fast you're able to, to get the ball to both pins. The middle of the floor didn't bother me too much. But how are we going to be able to defend four people with great arms and fast jumps and a, a setter that's delivering the ball on a dime out there? When, when did that all of a sudden come to fruition? I mean, because that wasn't the same team we had seen early in the year, you know, last year. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, it was a totally different outfit. And the speed was the key for you guys this year. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's running speed is very hard, you know, but it, it takes time and you have to commit to it. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the most people, Madison is an unbelievable athlete and a great competitor and all that type of stuff. But the most important thing about setting is setting. And, you know, can you put the ball where you want to, when you want to? Um, and it takes a lot of time and hours to train that and practice it. And, you know, People get bored with repetition, but repetition equals excellence. Um, and, you know, Madison spent a lot of time setting balls and, and working on that. And, and, you know, she she didn't have her best matches in the regional the, the last couple of years. So I think being in those moments, being in those situations gives you experience in learning how to handle it. Um, and so, you know, about three or four years ago, we started saying, okay, from the time the ball hits the setter's hands to the time the ball hits the outside hitter's hands, it needs to be one second. And, um, and it, it took some time. It took some trials and tribulations and um, it took some ups and downs. Um, but I think over the course of time, we got really good at it. But I think the other piece to that is that we had two outside hitters playing all the way around that could pass really well. Our libero could pass really well. Our DS Lauren Tharp could pass really well. And so rarely were we that much out of system. Um, or I say we were in, we were 
out of system less than our opponent. And so being in system more often helps us become a little bit faster and more efficient at it. Um, so I don't know if I'm fully answering that question, but it's taken a lot of time. No, you're doing a great job with it. And, and one other technical question I had for you, um, which you guys did really well, and I, I can't imagine that it happened overnight because we've worked at it really hard. We're playing in a game right now where teams consistently are attacking the ball at the right back setter, and the setter is back row. That's something that teams are trying to do more than ever before because they know that it forces the team to have somebody else step in and set the ball. Mm -hmm. And we struggled with that this year, I felt like, on our team, that we weren't nearly as good as I'd hoped to to have um, a libero or somebody else step in and, and set that second ball. But yet you guys found a way to be successful at that. Can you share how, whether it be your libero or whatever your system was, which I know it was your libero, but how you guys scored points from a, a tough situation where the setter played the first ball? Yeah, well, first of all, a lot of work. I mean, Curry was not great at setting second ball two years ago and she knew that and she took, kind of took pride in the fact that she needed to be better at it. And I'm not kidding, every single day this year, she spent either time before practice or after practice working on it. And even the day of the championship match, she spent probably set 75 balls out of system. And the match ended that way where she set Stumler and she got the kill. So, um, but I think your outside hitters have to be, you know, and last year, I think, you know, we, when we would work on defense, Defending, we would probably, if we put four balls into an offensive group to hit against our defense, we'd, we'd say, okay, three of them, let's go in system. One of them, let's go out of system to work on out of system. Right. Well, then a year ago, we're like, shouldn't that be 50-50? Because that's what a game is. You're 50% in system, 50% out of system. So I think it helped the group that was on offense playing against the defense get better at, you know, hitting against a big block, hitting against a full defense and setting uh, against defense, but, you know, I, I think, uh, one, another thing that we spend a lot of time as outside hitters learning to hit where they're not fake, you know, not hit where they're facing, you know, so many hitters, it's easy to defend because they just hit where in line with their body and where they're facing. And so wrist away off the top of the block, no look down the line, um, you know, and having a repertoire and, um, you know, that, that stuff is pretty important, but it, you know, and then the last two matches, I mean, both the Washington and, Texas and and I think you guys, Madison, had a lot of digs. I mean, she might have she might have let all setters and digs in the tournament because she got a lot of opportunities. How much time do your kids spend on the shot that just sunk our team? That uh, cup shot back into the the one zone where they're facing the right. I, I I couldn't believe how many balls landed in the last foot of the court right in front of me, <laughs> watching that ball land. And it was they were just perfect shots. I don't know if it was if that was a rare. Uh, show by your team but you hit some great shots like you're talking about facing the, the, the you know sharp cross court and then hitting that ball high over the block back to the corner that probably was an anomaly I don't know how many we got but maybe it was just that match that we got a few but killed us our players kind of make fun of me because I always make them hit no look down the line and I you know we call it the no looky cookie yeah. and uh you know facing cross and turning down the line but I you know Dave, you saw me play. I wasn't a great outside hitter in college, but I had to figure out some way to tool it off the block. So I would yeah. always try and face cross court and hit line because that was the only way I was going to get kills. For so sure. I just love that shot. And so we, 
we work on a lot and it's hard to get players to stay facing cross court and still hit it down line. They always want to open up and look and see where it went. Um, and so I just, you know, they can't they look. Proud. They made you proud to, up in <laughs> Omaha. I know that, but I just got two more questions for you. Then I'll turn it back to Daniel. Uh, number one, where do you see college volleyball today? Where, where is our sport? And, um, what improvements would you like to see? Uh, I, th I think we're moving in the right direction, but you know, where do you think we are and, and what would you like to see maybe differently in the college game? Um, well, first of all, the fact that we're the, the number one participated high school sport for high school girls is, is amazing because it wasn't that way probably seven or eight years ago, but it is now. And, um, you know, it's just incredible because one of the reasons I think it's so incredible is that volleyball has done it on its own merit. It hasn't been in comparison to, another sport or a, or a men's sport on the other side. It's been because of the game is so exciting and such a spectator sport. And, you know, I, I'm glad our ratings are going up, but they need to continue to go up. And I know the ratings in your league are really good. The ratings in the PAC 12 are really good and, and ours continue to go up and um, ESPN felt good about, you know, what happened in, in Omaha. Uh, but we're still, and I think that it, it's going to have to come from driven from ESPN athletic directors in corporate America to say like, this is the sport that needs to go to the next level in terms of marketability. And uh, it's such a marketable sport because the, the net is seven, four for the men, it's eight feet. And you can see that athleticism every time they jump and hit or block. And um, you know, so I think we're on the right path and um, I think that we just need to keep doing what we're doing and, and hopefully it, it transpires. But I mean, all of us, need to be trying to as head coaches and need to be thinking about how are we growing the game not just what's best for Purdue what's best for Kentucky like what's best for the entire game to to take this thing and um you know I I, I think that us winning this year is a huge help to you know I hope it inspires other programs to to want to do the same thing I mean no, I know we're all in this to do it but it can be done and and you know it's it's a lot of fun Finally, you and I teamed up to coach a, a club team here in Muncie. Uh, I think it was 1991. And uh, we traveled uh, out to try to do two things, win uh, the, the Davis Festival mm -hmm. um, and also go to um, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and win the uh, JOs. We didn't do either one of them, by the way, but we were, <laughs> we were close. Uh, what, do, what do you remember about uh, that, that team and, and that trip? Well, just, to, you know, I think trips like that and, you know, coaching with you and that group are why I enjoy. You just had great people. They were great competitors. They wanted to be around each other. Um, and so just motivating to to want to, you know, coach and help people do things they'd never done before. And, and uh you know, it's, uh, they, you know, one of, one of the things I remember also is that, you know, going there, we had probably the coldest beer that we've ever had. Um, coldest beer in California, for sure. Random, random Sacramento hotel, yeah. um, <laughs> indoor, outdoor motel. It might've been a motel six. I'm not sure, but. Um, I think it's a little bit better than that, but yeah, but you're yeah. right. The people were unbelievable uh, yeah. on that team. And uh, you may remember that we lost in, in, in the finals at Davis, a, a double double final to uh, Kamali'i and uh, Paley Baker, yeah. uh, I believe was the, the stud for uh, Kamali'i that uh, we couldn't stop. And then we go down to Albuquerque 
and we get knocked out of the tournament by Misty May as an eighth grader playing 16 and under for <laughs> a six tiger Mo Cavanaugh's outfit. Yeah. But, uh, uh, those are the things you don't, you know, you can't forget those kind of things. You always remember some of the people you run into along the way. And uh, uh, just, I'm just so happy for you, Craig, that you're, you're having the success that you deserve. And I know next year, you know, you'll, you, you graduate some people and, and you'll, you'll be starting uh, fresh, but uh, we know that you're going to be very successful, but again, thanks for being on and uh, Daniel, I'll let you take it over from here. Yeah. Let's uh, let's wrap it up with a little bit of, of rapid fire. All right, coach. So I'll, I'll throw a couple of questions at you and uh, and we'll see the responses. So for, for the volleyball players listening and taking notes throughout this interview, hopefully you all are, what was the atmosphere around the team when things got tense, right? Final four comes around championship might be tomorrow. What was the mood like? That's what they wanted. They've talked about it for the entire year. Like when we get to the final four, this is what's going to happen. When we get to the championship, this is what's going to happen. So it was just like we've been talking about this the entire year. They just were prepared. Perfect. And then what was your impression when Selection Sunday comes around and you see Western Kentucky on the other side of that draw? It's just like, here we go again. <laughs> here we go again. Well, not only that, but I saw Western Kentucky. I saw Purdue and I'm like, I love competing, but I hate competing against my friends and, and people I respect. It's, it's hard, you know, because no one should lose in those situations. Yeah. And then of course you get like Washington for the third time in five years yeah. around the corner. It's, it's a, it's a repeat festival. So coach Sean Dell has had some fun Purdue volleyball memories. I think he was on the field when they upset Ohio state a few years ago, you mentioned you love football. What are your favorite Kentucky football memories in your, you know, dozen and a half years? Oh, I mean, my first or second, third year, we beat Louisville on the last second touchdown pass. We upset LSU, number one team in the country, I think back in 2006 or seven. Um, God, I mean, even last year, they won the won a bowl game on a pass by, uh, um, you know, our quarterback that never passed. I mean, he ran all, all the time and, you know, throws a touchdown pass to win it. And um, but college football is just so much fun to watch and so much fun to be a part of the atmosphere. And, um, you know, I, I, I equate a little bit going back to Dave's question. I mean, I think college volleyball is such an exciting sport and such a fan spectator sport or that, you know, there's so many exciting things that happen during our game, whether it's a stuff block, whether it's a dig transition kill, whether it's a straight down overpass kill that people jump out of their seats for. And there's so many things like that that happen in football too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Coach Shondell, Coach Skinner, thank you so much. I'm Daniel Gilman. Everyone, I really appreciate you listening and joining us. This is another episode of Dig City, a Purdue Volleyball Podcast.